Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. Uh, we're going to go to the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke today. And uh, in Luke chapter 24, Luke begins to unpack this. And it is actually the third day after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And uh, this happens to two of Jesus' disciples. Uh, and Luke 24 verse 13, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus. It's from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. It's about eight miles northwest of, of Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things that had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and he started to walk with them. That's pretty cool. But the Bible says their eyes were holding that they should not know him. In other words, they didn't, they didn't see him. They looked at him, they talked to him, but they couldn't understand who he was. Uh, we don't know if that's kind of a supernatural thing or if you know, it wasn't the day of social media. We, we don't know. They might have not really ever seen Jesus up close. They really might not know what he looked like exactly. And so this is the story. It's an amazing little thing. Um, it's the third day after the crucifixion, and you've got to imagine that. You know, we read it as history. We're 2,000 years past, and we've got the benefit of two millennia of hindsight, but not the disciples on that day. All of the disciples are demoralized. They're in hiding. They're scared for their lives. They don't know but what the Roman soldiers are going to bust down the door and come and crucify them next if they were followers of Jesus. So it's a tough time to be a disciple. Their, their hopes and their dreams were literally nailed to that cross. And when they saw Jesus die, something died in them. And especially when they saw his beaten, battered, broken, lifeless body peeled off that cross as they pulled the nails out of his hands and feet and they saw that limp body being transported to a barren empty tomb and boy when that stone got rolled in place it was like somebody just sealed their heart inside that grave and for them it's it's all over for them everything died when jesus died every hope every dream every every good thing in their life was was buried in that dark tomb it mocked their faith. Everything they believed in is now gone. And so these two, that, that Luke tells us the story, these two disciples, they decide, you know what? We tried. Uh, we followed him. We believed in him. We listened to the teaching. We had hope. We had faith. But uh, then we saw him die. We didn't think it could ever happen, but it did. And uh, he's gone. And so they decide, you know what? We, we did our bit. For king and country, I mean, we were there, we pushed, we, we helped, we believed, we tried, but it's all over. And so, I'm sorry, but we're done. Um, we gave it the royal attempt, but we're, we're done, we're headed home. And uh, so they start, and they, they walk to their little village up that dirt road, and, and, and it's eight miles, they got lots of time to talk, and you know how we are, as they walk, they talk, and as they talk, they just start dumping on each other. And they begin to talk about all their hurts and all their disappointments and how everything's gone wrong and how everything's defeat and everything's depressing and there's no reason to smile and there's no reason to hope. And, and as they're doing that and as they're having this very negative, very depressing conversation, this stranger, they don't know who he is. 
this stranger walks up and joins them on that little dirt road and begins to walk with them and they begin to talk to him. And here's how it goes. Uh, Verse 17, he said to them, what are you talking about? What manner of communications are these that you have with one another? You walk and you're so sad, I can tell. And, And one of them, whose name is Cleopas, we know his name, he answers and he says, are you kidding me? Are you just a stranger in Jerusalem? Did you like just happen by today? Because you don't know the things that have happened in the last few days. And this stranger with this touch of heavenly humor, he looks back at them and he says, what things? As though he wouldn't have known exactly what had happened in the last three days. And then they just dump on him. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. You haven't heard, seriously, how our own chief priests and our own rulers, we can't believe what they did. They turned him over. They handed him over. They delivered him to be condemned to death and they crucified him. Are you serious? You must be the only person in these parts that hasn't heard What happened? You are so oblivious. I can't believe you're ignorant of what's happened in the last three days. They just dump on him. They pour out every shattered hope and every damaged dream. And they they pour out all the depression and all the anguish of heart. Jesus of Nazareth was, was a prophet like nobody else. Jesus spoke with an authority... We've gone to this religious stuff all of our life, but when he spoke, there was an authority that we'd never heard before. And he did so many mighty miracles. We can name you names and we can take you to places and we can introduce you to people that once were blind, but now they see. And once they were crippled and maimed, but now they walk. And we can take you to people that once were lepers and had to live on the outskirts of society, but Jesus turned their life around and he brought them back to their family and he made it all new and he gave them hope. And we can introduce you, we can quote you chapter and verse on it. He gave us a reason to live. He was our hope. We invested all of our faith and trust in him. But we got to tell you, Mr. Stranger, he's gone now. For us, it just died when we saw that crucifixion. We can't believe that our own chief priests took this good, kind, loving man who did nothing but help people. And they killed him. They, They murdered him, crucified by the Roman government. So we're done. It hurt too bad. We'll never recover. We're headed to our little home and we're going to eke out the rest of our days in this pitiful little existence because it's all downhill from here. It's over. We can't believe that our leaders did that to this good man. But they delivered him up to death. They handed him over to die. It's over. We're done. We're going home. See you later. The Bible in English comes to us first through the Greek language. That was the common language of the day in New Testament times. And so the New Testament part of your Bible was originally written in Greek. And Greek is a more intricate and descriptive language than English. We've got our expressions and our words, but but the best example is probably the word love because for, for love, we have one word, but we use it everywhere. I love my car. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my dog. I love pizza. I love Mexican food. Like we, we love is just this universal word but in greek there's several words for love and they all have these shades of meaning so sometimes just by studying like a little word um, looking it up in a dictionary as as you're reading the bible it's it's so powerful And, and that happened to me with with this little passage see there's a word in this little passage that luke uses it's 
Paradidomy, that's the Greek word. You don't need to know that. There's no test after church. But, but, but it means, it's a judicial word. It comes from the court system. It comes from the prison system of the day. Paradidomy means to hand over, to deliver up, to put into custody, to give over for safekeeping. It, it's, it's this judicial word. But it also has the sense of handing somebody over to be judged or condemned or punished or even put to death. And in the scripture, the gospel writers use it in this sense. That it's not done through the normal process. It's done with treachery. It's done with betrayal. It's done with a a terrible evil motive. And so you would expect in light of what happened to Jesus, you would expect the gospel writers to use that word a lot. And they do. The four gospel writers, just the four books, use that one word about Jesus more than 70 times in four gospels. And Jesus uses the same word many times himself when he's trying to tell his disciples, it's going to get worse before it gets better. This is going to happen, but don't despair. And, and, and so here, let me just kind of give you a bird's eye view. We won't do all of them. That's too long. But, but let's, let's give you a bird's eye view. Mark 14. And Judas Iscariot, one of the 12... He went to the chief priests to betray him. There's that word, paradidomy. He went to hand Jesus over to deliver him up, to treacherously betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad they promised to give Judas money. And then from that moment on, Judas looked for a way to conveniently betray him, to conveniently hand Jesus over, deliver him up, treacherously act against him. Verse 18, as they sat and did eat, this is the last supper, Jesus looks around the table at his own disciples and says, verily I say to you, one of you that's eating with me right now, you're going to betray me. Same word, paradidomy. You're going to hand me over. You're going to treacherously act against me. You're going to deliver me up to my enemies. You're sitting right here at the table. John 18 too. And Judas also, which betrayed him. There's the word. Again, it occurs everywhere in the Gospels. Judas that treacherously betrayed him, that delivered him up, that handed him over. He knew the place Jesus was going. He knew easily how to access Jesus because Jesus often went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with his disciples. And then in Luke 22, literally the kiss on the cheek that was a slap in the face. Jesus said to Judas, Judas, really? You just walked into this garden where we used to pray together, all of the disciples. You just literally walked in here with a band of Roman soldiers and you are going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You're going to hand me over just like that? And so that word's everywhere in the Gospels. But it's not just the Gospel writers that use it. Jesus himself used that word to try to prepare his disciples that it's going to get a whole lot worse for a while, but then it's going to be okay. He tried to prepare them. Look at this, Matthew 20. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be treacherously used and misused and abused. He's going to be delivered up to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they'll condemn him to death. And then they'll turn around and they'll hand him over. They'll deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And the third day, he'll rise again. Now, that's the good news at the end of the story. But, but see, you sometimes hear what you're conditioned to hear. 
You hear what life has conditioned you to think or believe. And, and it's like you can't break through that, that paradigm. You can't break through that wall of your own thinking. And that's how the disciples were. Jesus told them, I'm going to die. It's going to be bad, but I'm going to rise again. They never seemed to catch that line. And so now there's these two disciples and they've given up. Like, it's over. And they're headed home. And, and they look at this stranger who's just joined them and they don't know who he is. And they think, yeah, great for you to talk. You weren't there. We were there. We saw him die. We saw the blood. We saw the soldiers and the spear and the crown of thorns and the, the nail. We saw all of that. And furthermore, we saw Jesus like a victim handed from one judge to another to another, from one courtroom to another, to another, from one trial to another and another and another. Six trials overnight, illegal trials under their system. But they just wanted to do anything they could to get rid of Jesus. We saw him handed over. He was passed from the chief priest to the Sanhedrin. He was handed over from the Sanhedrin to Pilate. Pilate delivered him over to Herod to try to deal with him. Herod said, I can't deal with this. Hands him back to Pilate. And then Pilate hands him over to the guards and the angry mob. And he's crucified. And it's ugly and it's pitiful and it's pathetic. And Jesus is a murderer, a murder victim. And he's a martyr. And Jesus is is, is the one that's... It's just, he's handed over. He's treated like a sack of potatoes. It's awful. It's recorded in the Gospels. Mark 15. Straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes, the whole council. They're all against Jesus. And they bound him and carried him away. And here's that word again. They handed him over. They delivered him up to Pilate. Verse 15, same chapter. Pilate, willing to content the people. He's being pressured by the Sanhedrin. and He releases Barabbas, a known killer unto them. And he delivers Jesus. He hands over Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. So, so here's kind of how it goes in the Gospels. It's, it's the worst travesty of justice you've ever seen. That they would do this to a good man, a kind man, a loving man, who'd never done anything but help people. Who'd never done anything but heal people. Who'd never done anything but minister goodness and grace and forgiveness and mercy to people. It's a travesty of justice that they would do this to him. But here's how it went. Judas walks into the garden, hands Jesus over to the guards. The guards hand him over to the chief priests. The chief priests, they hand him over to their Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin hand him over to Pilate. It's not legal for them to put a man to death. So they hand him over to Pilate. Pilate, he, he, he interviews Jesus. He tries to make a judgment. Pilate's wife warns him, don't have anything to do with that guy. I, I, I dreamed about him. He, he, he's a good man. Pilate hands him over to King Herod. Herod said, I, I don't know what to do with this guy. And he hands him back to Pilate. You can imagine the injustice of it, the indignity of it, that Jesus is just being passed from one to another. He's totally a victim, or so it seems. He's finally passed over to an angry mob and crucified. And that's why these two are on their way home. When you see your hope handed over from one person to another, and it seems like he can't even lift a finger to defend himself, it's like your hope gets handed over. And so that's what they basically say. When we saw him die, something died in us. When we saw him buried, it was some, like somebody took everything that was good in our lives and just pushed it in a grave and rolled a stone in front and it's done and we're headed home and there's nothing left to believe in. So thank you very much. We're done. We're, it's over. You can hear the bitterness and the hurt and the pain in their voice. Look at Luke 24 again. This is verse 21. 
We trusted it would have been him that would have redeemed Israel. And furthermore, Mr. Stranger, it's not like we took off at the first sign of trouble. We did hang in there with Jesus for a while. We were praying with everything in us that it would turn around at the last minute, at the last second. It's not like we just took off the first time they arrested Jesus. We hung around. We were here the last three days. You weren't. We were here. This is the third day since these things were done. It's not like we took off at the first minute. We hung around for three days. But then it started to get weird. This morning, certain women among the disciples, they made us astonished. They went early to the grave where they buried Jesus' body three days ago. And um, they didn't find a body there. That's weird. And then they came back and they said that there were angels. And the angels said they were alive. And then some of the other disciples, they went to the grave and they found it like the woman had said. No, no body there. But they didn't see Jesus. So we've reached the only logical conclusion. The women are delusional. The angels were a figment of their imagination. If there's no body there, something weird's going on. Somebody stole his body. Somebody's playing a cruel joke. It's over. Can you imagine that they headed out of Jerusalem on the third day after Jesus had done everything he could to tell them, after three days, I'll rise again. After three days, I'm coming back. After three days, I'm coming out of the grave. And you can judge them if you want. And we can get up on our high horse and look down our nose at them and think, you know, how dumb is that, people? Like, like really? You're going to give up on the day of the miracle? You're going to give up that close to your answer? But see, you weren't there. And I wasn't there. And if you just be a little compassionate for a second and think, wait a minute, there's times in my life I've given up. There's, there's times in my life that everything pushed against me and I just kind of threw up my hands and said, God, there's no use. I, I've been really close to a miracle or something good and, and it just was so hard and everything was so wrong and it was so unfair and life was so unkind and I was so alone that I just threw up my hands and said, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. That's happened to all of us. Nothing hits us harder than when we lose our hope. You can lose your home but when you lose your hope, it's worse. Losing your hope knocks the breath out of you. It's like a punch to the gut. It, it steals your joy and it saps your strength and it wounds your heart and it blinds your vision and it just rocks your world. And all of a sudden, everything that was good is shaken and hurting and gone. It's just awful. And that's what happened to those two disciples. On the third day, the day that they should have been hanging around, but see, nobody was hanging around. Everybody had run. Everybody was hiding. Everybody was defeated. Nobody's at the tomb doing a 10-minute countdown. You know, 10, 9, here he comes, 8, 7. Nobody's there doing that. Nobody's there doing that. It's over for all of them. And these two just figure, what's the use of going through the motions and putting on a charade? We're, we're just going to go home. It's over. And it's at that moment after they've poured out all this depression, that the stranger can't take it anymore. And he says to them, O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He can't hold it back anymore. He said, you are so thick-headed and you are so slow-hearted. Don't you understand that every page of the Jewish scriptures, all the Old Testament, it pointed toward this moment. 
Are you so thick you can't understand that Jesus had to die so he could rise? His grave wasn't the end. It was the beginning. That wasn't a defeat. That was the beginning of a victory. That wasn't the worst day of human history. That was the best day of human history. Don't you get it? Don't you understand that all your scriptures pointed this way? And he just starts talking to them. Can't you see that his suffering was a pathway to glory? And the doorway of that tomb was actually the doorway to a resurrection. Don't, don't you see it? And then the stranger preaches this sermon to them. He starts walking through the Old Testament and he starts showing them that Jesus was actually on every page of the Hebrew scripture. And I wasn't there and it's not recorded in the Bible. And so I'm just going to make a stab at it. But it's like he said... Don't you remember Genesis? God created man and and he formed him out of the dust of the earth, but then he breathed into man the breath of life. Don't you understand that that Jesus was that creator that created man? And and, and you remember Exodus? You remember the night that we call the Passover when when they shed the blood of an innocent lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost of their house and then judgment didn't hit that house because of the blood of the lamb. Don't you understand? That was a picture of Jesus. He's the lamb that had to shed his blood so that judgment can pass. Don't you get that? Don't, don't you understand that whole tabernacle thing and the priesthood? And you, you remember the Old Testament, thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs were sacrificed and their blood was shed and the priests took their blood and put it on the altar. Don't you understand that's what Jesus was doing? You remember numbers? Like numbers is like one of the low points in Hebrew history. We were rebellious. We didn't enter the promised land. And so God let us wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And, and, and yet God looked after us even when we were in the wilderness. You remember there was manna that, that, that appeared on the ground every morning. We were fed. Our shoes didn't wear out and all that stuff. You remember that? Uh, God was walking with us then. You, you remember uh, as they walked there, it was just sand everywhere, an occasional bush. They, they just walked everywhere. But every night when, when three million Hebrews would uh, make camp for the night and they get up the next morning and lo and behold, there would be a rock with them. And that rock would be on the horizon and there'd be water flowing from the rock. And they'd break camp the next time and they'd walk for miles through the desert. But when they set up camp again, they'd get up the next morning and lo and behold, the same rock would be there. The writer of Hebrews later said, and that rock that followed them was Christ. He, he was with them. Don't you understand? That's Jesus. And he walks through the, this stranger walks through the whole Old Testament. Remember the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? A heathen king throws them in the fire and it's all done for them. It's the worst case scenario. They're about ready to be burned to a crisp. And then that heathen king walks over to the edge of the furnace and said, wait a minute, somebody made a mistake. We threw three boys and they were bound into the furnace but just a second I see four men walking around loose and the fourth he looks like the son of God don't you get it that was Jesus in the Old Testament and he walks him through the whole Old Testament like that and, and, and it's an amazing thing it would have been some sermon and, and then this happens verse 28 they drew near to the village whither they went and he, he made like he was just going to keep on going on his journey but they constrained them. They're enjoying this talk now. And they said, no, no, abide with us. It's, it's nearly evening. The day is far spent. And so he goes into their house to tarry with them. And the Bible says, as, and it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened 
And all of a sudden, they know who it is. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, my goodness. Jesus has been talking to us all afternoon. And, 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 and then he vanishes just like that. And then they vanish too. They jump up from supper and they take off running back to Jerusalem because now they've got to share the news with everybody. So they they cover that eight miles a lot faster going back than they did going home. And as they're running and rushing to get back to share the good news that Jesus is actually alive, they get talking to each other. It's kind of breathless talk now. Didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way? Didn't you feel that while he was opening the scriptures us and so they head back to Jerusalem and they find the 11 disciples gathered together and now everything's changed because the the buzz is the talk is the Lord has risen indeed and he appeared to Simon Peter and then these two get in the act and they tell what things were done in the way they tell here it is how he was known of them in breaking of bread I can't prove this but I think what happened is when Jesus reached up to break that bread and bless it and give it to them in their own home. That across the kitchen table when he passed them each some bread. They saw some gaping wounds in his wrist. That any human being suffering those wounds would have bled out in minutes. It would have been over. And yet this stranger with these gaping wounds in his wrist. He's been talking to them all afternoon. He's very much alive. And they rush back to Jerusalem. And they deliver the awesome news. And everybody's rejoicing. And only then does it dawn on them. Wait just a minute. (laughs) This was God's plan all along. All along God intended for this to happen. We thought it was the worst day of our lives. It was actually the best day. We thought it was all over. It was only just beginning. We thought it was a total defeat. It actually is the greatest miracle we've ever seen. We watched it. Judas handed him over to the guards and the guards handed him over to the chief priests and they handed him over to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin handed him over to Pilate and Pilate to Herod and Herod back to Pilate and Pilate handed him over to the the mob and he was crucified and it looked like he was a victim and a martyr. He was a murder victim. But then they start to remember. You remember? We were all standing around at a distance because we're scared. And we're watching Jesus struggle for breath on the cross. And, and, and he's bleeding and he's bleeding out and it's all over. But don't you remember just before he died? You remember what he said? Oh my goodness. John nineteen thirty. When Jesus had therefore received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. We always preach about that one. That's a cool line for Easter. But the verse continues. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Guess what? That's the very same word that's used 70 plus times in the Gospels. Jesus handed over his spirit. He was in charge the entire time. His life wasn't taken from him. He wasn't a victim. He was the victor. He was always in control the entire time. Even though it looked like the worst case scenario, even though it looked like the devil had won, even though it looked like hell had had won the day, Jesus was in charge and he hands over his spirit and it's like, That's what he was doing the entire time. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He gave his life. 
Calvary was an ambush. The forces of hell did not expect what was coming next. It looked like death, but it was really life. It looked like defeat, but it was really victory. It looked like it was all over, but really hope had just begun for the human race. Jesus was in control the entire time and the devil and every demon of hell, they fell for it hook, line, and sinker. And I'm glad to tell you that today he is alive and he's in this room and he can still do any miracle no matter what has unfolded. (laughs) Jesus told us. He told them. They just missed it. We sometimes miss it too. He told them. John 10, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He looked at them. He said, I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus had said this at the beginning of the gospel of John early in his ministry. He said to the group of Pharisees, he said, you destroyed this temple, but in three days I'll raise it up again. Hell, you can do your worst, but in the middle of the worst day of your life, I can step in and I can turn hell's worst into heaven's best. I can turn your mistake into your miracle. I can do anything because I'm God. I can do it. This is coming from a family of of three uh, siblings. I have a brother and a sister. I think I understand uh, this little family. They're a little dysfunctional. you remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus? They were Jesus' friends. They lived in a little village not far from Jerusalem, Bethany. And Jesus and his disciples, they would stay there sometimes. You know, Jesus and the 12, they'd all invade and all sleep on the couch. And, 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 and so um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're close to Jesus. And, and Mary, she's the workaholic. She's always like going in the kitchen and nobody's helping and she's mad. Now, if that's you, don't raise your hand. But she's in there rattling pots and pans and making a noise and trying to guilt everybody else into helping. And then there, there, that's, that's Martha. And, and then there's Mary. And Mary's always sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she's so sweet and kind and prayerful. But she's not helping in the kitchen. So Martha is perpetually mad at Mary. And Lazarus, he's the brother, and so he just decides one day, look, I can't take this anymore, and he just dies, gets out of the pressure. And, and, but then Jesus raises him from the dead, so he's kind of back in it. But anyway, it was when Lazarus died that Mary and Martha had this crisis of faith. It's the worst day of their life. Their brothers died. And Jesus, their friend, he doesn't even come. It's like four days later, he could have got there. It's not far from where he was to where they were. He shows up four days after the funeral and it's like, Jesus. And, and, and Martha walks out of the house and meets Jesus at the end of the driveway and says this, Lord, if you'd just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You messed up, Jesus. You didn't show up in our hour of need. You left us alone. And then Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Martha, you don't get it. With me, you're never alone, even when you feel alone. You're never left alone, even when it looks like life has conspired against you. And even if the worst case scenario unfolds in your life, I can turn it around because I'm God. After his crucifixion, the Bible even tells us that Jesus went into the grave And he preached a sermon to the spirits that were in the grave. Peter records that in his epistle. That would have been a cool sermon to hear. (laughs) But but here's, here's the thing. 
in the grave, hell's having a party. I don't know if the devil's hard of hearing or not, but, but I think he may have thought he heard on that crucifixion day. He may have heard Jesus say, I am finished, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, it is finished. Prophecy is fulfilled. The work of redemption is completed. And so hell, they're having a little party because the Nazarene is dead. Jesus is gone. Uh, you know, no more devils being cast out and thrown into pigs. And, and they're having a major party. And in the middle of the party in hell, Jesus walks into the grave itself. And he walks up to the devil. And here's what he says. Those keys that you used to bind my people and hold them back and hurt them and destroy them. Those keys that you've held for centuries, hand them over. (laughs) See, Jesus wasn't being handed over. It just looked like that. Jesus was on a mission to take the keys that had locked up his creation for centuries. He was on a mission to take those keys. The Bible calls death uh, the last enemy of mankind. We do everything we can to stave off death a little while longer. We'll diet and we'll eat healthy and we'll exercise. We do all kinds of things and sometimes it's just motivated out of fear. The doctor, he read us the riot act and we're just trying to avoid our worst enemy. We're more scared of death than anything else. But here's the thing. If Jesus conquered your worst enemy, your greatest enemy, the last enemy, if he conquered that enemy 2,000 years ago, he started with the big job and now everything is downhill from there. If he could handle death, he can handle depression. If he could handle death, he can handle disease. If he can handle death, he can handle dysfunction. If he could conquer the grave, he can conquer anything that's messed up in your life. That's the Jesus that we serve. Oh my goodness. I wish you clap your hands and just lift your voice for a second. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If the devil doesn't even have the keys to his own domain anymore, why in the world would you let the devil lock you up? Your mind, your home, your marriage, your family, your future. Why would you let him lock you up when he doesn't even have the keys to his own house anymore? Why would you do that? There's one detail about um, this little story that nearly everybody misses. It's it's really strange to me. Um, I've heard preachers preach on this passage. Most of them miss it. I've read commentators that, that study the Bible and write books about it, and most of them miss it. And artists, like the paint this picture, most of them miss it. In fact, I think pretty much all the artists have missed it. But it's right in the scripture, just as plain as the nose on your face, plain as day, John 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. There it is. Cleopas' wife was at the cross. The two disciples walking home on the road to Emmaus, it's not two guys. It's a husband and a wife walking home to their little house, to their little humble existence. And as this husband and wife walk, they talk about all that's wrong, all that's depressing, all the defeat, all the dysfunction. They're talking negative. They're talking negative. Which begs me to ask you this question. What do you talk about in your home What do you talk about at your kitchen table? 
What do you talk about when you're sitting with your family? Is it about good things, God, future, hope, or is it about like problems and depression and anxiety and tension and fighting? And What do you talk about at home? They're walking home, and here's the thing about the two of them. They've got their back to the miracle. They're walking away from Jerusalem on the greatest day in human history. They are walking in the wrong direction. It's not exactly this like laid-back holiday weekend for Jesus. Jesus has given his life as a ransom for sin. Jesus is going into the grave itself to declare his victory over death and hell and the grave. Jesus has got lots to occupy his time on that weekend. But here's the mercy of the God that we've been worshiping this morning at LifePoint. He's so merciful that on that busy weekend, that consequential weekend, when he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, Jesus loves people so much that he catches up to these two disciples who are walking the wrong direction, walking away from their miracle, walking with their back to the greatest victory of human history. They are totally in the wrong. And furthermore, they're just pouring out depression and anguish and tension and hurt. And Jesus catches up to them and he spends a whole afternoon just walking with them and talking with them and ministering to them because that's how much God loves us. So I came to LifePoint today with one little very simple message and it's this. For every person in this building, Jesus wants to walk home with you this afternoon. Jesus wants to get in your car when you drive out of this little parking lot and he wants to turn with you whatever direction you turn and he wants to go home. He wants to sit at your kitchen table and he wants to be in your living room and he wants to turn around what only he can turn around. You've tried. If you could have turned it around, you would have already turned it around. If you could have fixed it, you would have already fixed it. If you could have healed it, you would have already healed it. But you know, your talk in your home has been pretty negative and pretty defeating. And Jesus said, wait a minute. Even if you're walking the wrong direction, even if you've lost hope, even if you're turned backward, I'm going to catch up with you and I'm going to make it a victory. Would you lift your hands right now? We're going to come to the front in a moment and pray together. But would you just lift your hands right now and let your voice ascend higher than your fingertips and just fill this room with praise to God because he's the God that can turn around your marriage. He's the God that can turn around your kids. He's the God that can turn around your health. He's the God that can turn around the depression that's been attacking your mind. He can do anything. And furthermore, he's alive and he's here today and he's here to minister and he's going to do something great for somebody before we leave these doors in a few minutes. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.